Welcome to the Future of Coding. This is Steve Krauss. So I have two big pieces of news today before I introduce our guest. Firstly, my paper on the comprehensibility of functional reactive programming was accepted to Rebels at Splash this year. My first academic paper that I, that I wrote was uh, accepted. Um, yes, it was an in-progress paper, and um, this is also a workshop at a conference, which I think is much more informal, but I'm still very excited. And I will be in Boston from the 4th of November to the 9th of November. So um, reach out on whatever platform uh, you can if you're in town and want to meet up. I am very excited about that. And as far as the paper goes, I um, have half a mind to read it right here on this podcast in, a, in its own episode. Um, but that kind of seems difficult just uh, with voice to explain without slides or any visual aids. Um, I'm working on the talk version of the paper now, so maybe I will just link to that YouTube video that I come up with when it is done. Secondly, I was approached by Amjad at Replit to sponsor this podcast. I was very flattered when I got that email, and I'm really, really excited to work with him and, and his company. Um, they're, they're just a really cool group. I, I worked with them briefly a few months ago, um, but uh, apparently he started following the podcast and, and liked what, what uh, we're up to here and uh, wanted to be a part of it and help help move it forward. So, um, so yeah, so it's re really exciting. Um, he, in, in part, he's paying for um, episode transcripts. Uh, the, f the first one was the last episode, which actually James Koppel paid for himself, but going forward, um, Replit is going to be paying for episodes, uh, which is really exciting. It's, it's been really uh, frequently requested that we get transcripts for episodes. I was almost going to set up a Patreon to pull the money of people uh, who, who listened to the show already and wanted and wanted transcripts uh, because people were actually paying for it individually uh, and and that's silly we should you know we should pull resources for something like this um, but uh, then the problem was solved uh, by a third party so uh, we don't have to do that yet um, or wherever maybe so anyways without um, further ado um, here is my very first message from our sponsor Replit is an online REPL for over 30 languages it started out as a code playground, but now scales up to a full development environment where you can do everything from deploying web servers to training ML models, all driven by the REPL. They're a small startup in San Francisco, but they reach millions of programmers, students, and teachers. They're looking for hackers interested in the future of coding and making software tools more accessible and enjoyable. So email jobs at repl.it if you're interested in learning more. And now to introduce our guest, I'm really excited. I have um, someone really special today um, that I, I really, you know, w w was a little shocked when she agreed so easily to be on the podcast because uh, in my mind, she's, she's a very big deal at this point. So uh, Nadia Ekbal is an independent researcher at Protocol Labs now. Um, she has become the leading voice on the topic of sustainability and open source, practically starting the conversation, or at least, or at the very least, dr uh, drastically shifting it single-handedly uh, with the publication of her paper, with the Ford Foundation, uh, Roads and Bridges. It's a wonderful report and doesn't take nearly as long to read as it may seem because it, it, it is like 80 pages, but you know, the, the spacing is such that it's, it's, uh, you could read it in a single sitting in like an hour or so if, if, you, if you got into it, which I suspect many people who listen here would. Uh, on the uh, bright side, I go, in this conversation, we go over many topics that I that isn't in that report. Um, we kind of go beyond the report and also beyond her other writings that you'll find on the internet. 
uh, in preparation for this episode, I read everything I could find of hers on the internet because she she is really brilliant. Um, so we go on on, on the less traveled roads here. So that's uh, on the upside. On the downside, this this podcast won't be a replacement for reading that report and reading her other work. Um, her report and, and her other writing deal a lot with the, the essential role of the open source maintainer, which today is, is more part of the conversation that, that maintainers are overworked and undervalued and, and the activities they do are so essential, um, even more so than a lot of the code activities that are essential to... Um, open source. Um, so, but anyways, um, so read, read the report, maybe even before you listen, you know, pause this and go read the report and then come back. But you could also just listen to this and, and read the report some other time. One other uh, note, just a reminder, uh, now that we have Replit sponsoring, uh, this episode co- also comes along with a transcript, which you could find at futureofcoding.org slash episodes slash 31. Uh, and then if you just scroll down, you'll see the transcript. You, you could also just type hashtag transcript at the end of the URL to get to the transcript. Um, and if you have any feedback on um, anything, as always, but especially now with this, this new sponsor, please um, feel free to tweet or email me. Um, I am excited to hear your feedback. So without any further ado, I bring you Nadia Ekbal. Welcome, Nadia. Hi, Steve. I think a, a number of people listen to the podcast have likely heard about you and your work before on uh, the sustainability of open source. Um, but for many people, I think myself included, it seems like you kind of came out of nowhere with um, all this amazing work. Uh, and so I'd like to start um, from before you started writing about open source sustainability and hear a bit about your background, where you came from originally. Yeah. Yeah. I still kind of feel like sometimes I came out of <laughs> nowhere too, um, although I guess it's been a few years now. Um, yeah, I kind of stumbled into open source unintentionally. Um, there were two tracks of things that happened. Like one was that I've never, I've ever, I've never considered myself to be a software developer, although I've written code that I have deployed here and there sometimes. Um, but I'm by no means a software developer. Um, but when I was learning how to code, um, I remember just sort of being struck by how easy it was to learn, which I guess is not not always what people say about um, about coding, but it was just very easy to get like a very basic application up and running. Um, for someone who had like no background in coding, I was just like surprised that that was the case. And um, realizing that there were, the reason why it was so easy was not because I was like totally brilliant and <laughs> wrote everything myself, but because we could rely on other people's tools, um, other people's frameworks and libraries, and I mean, even languages. Um, that made it such a quick and easy experience for me. And so I think that was something I kind of like that stuck with me over the years um, that I remembered that um, coding is not just about the actual code that you personally are writing, but you're kind of standing on the shoulders of these other giants. So that was kind of like one thread. Um, and then the other thread where I kind of more directly came into open source, um, despite not really knowing anything about it, was um, I was working in venture capital briefly uh, before I started doing the open source stuff. And um, even before then, I guess like I for the past few years up to that point, I've been really interested in understanding um, opportunities in technology that were really interesting and really important, but weren't obviously fundable by venture capital. Um, and experimented with a few different permutations of that, um, but just sort of feeling like landscape wise, it didn't really make sense to me that 
venture capital is this very extreme experimental form of funding um, that made sense in the early days of software because software was this like risky, unproven thing. So you have risky, unproven sort of um, capital to go with it. But it seemed that as software was maturing, that we should be finding other just just a great diversity of types of funding um, that would lead to different outcomes in tech. So it's just really interesting this question of like what else is out there for funding besides venture capital um, to fund things that are useful in technology. And uh, after I left the firm I was at, I was sort of just like flailing about and looking for answers to that question. Um, I didn't really have a plan, um, which was definitely like a difficult time. Um, but I kind of just treat it as this sort of like intellectual problem. And I had enough money to make that work for at least a few months. And would just start like digging around on the internet, looking for uh, interesting things that I thought should exist in the world that didn't seem obviously suited to venture capital and just cold emailing people and asking them, hey, like, how are you funding yourself or how is this work being funded? Um, funny story, that's actually how I ended up at Protocol Labs now. Um, I met Juan because he was one of those people that I like stumbled upon IPFS and I was like, this is really cool. And I just emailed him. Um, asking about like how how they were being funded um and so I, I just like pulled like a huge list of like all these different projects that I found interesting and they weren't all open source they were just like anything technology related that I thought was interesting and uh, after going through that list I kind of realized that there were a lot of these things were sort of I guess like theoretically interesting or yes maybe they should exist but like they didn't they didn't already exist there were it was it was kind of harder to make this like theoretical argument for like someone ought to fund this thing um whereas i noticed for this other category of stuff which was um open source projects like they already existed and people already relied on them but they didn't have any sort of clear funding model um despite talking to the maintainers of these projects who um, seemed pretty frustrated about their situation and so that was kind of i think the moment where i was like oh there's something really interesting happening in open source um, and, and I started kind of like digging into that question and, um, talking to friends who knew more about open source than I did. And I think this is kind of like the fun part of an outsider's perspective. Um, you often don't have a lot of context on a situation which can sometimes make you kind of naive and like do dumb things. Um, but it can also give you a fresh perspective on a problem and, um, a lot of people I talked to were like, oh, no, that's how open source works. It's totally fine. Um, it's just this like community participatory thing. I know it sounds really weird, but it just like it works great. And from my view, it was kind of like, well, I don't know if that really makes sense since it seems like we're all relying on this like critical infrastructure um, that like doesn't have any way of sustaining itself. Um, and this is around the time that Heartbleed happened. Um, there was like shell shock that happened around then. And since then we've had like the Equifax thing that happened. Um, so there were just like more and more examples of um, open source projects causing problems for other people because they were kind of being overlooked um, or under supported. And yeah, that's kind of how I ended up in this space is a long way of saying that. Wonderful. Yeah, that uh, definitely answers the question. I had, there were two uh, interesting threads in there that I wanted to double back and ask about. The first one was um, that it, so it sounds like you left your VC uh, job with a question, like, like almost like an academic intellectual question, like you said, that you wanted to answer 
and it sounds like to solve a, a real problem. Uh, and then like eventually you found your way to a problem that then you, then you wrote about it or worked on, worked on solving. It's, it's just, to me, it sounds like, um, a very interesting way to think about, about your career. Uh, it's, it's, it's like a way that I happen to also think about my career in, in kind of a similar spirit, I think, but I think it's, it's pretty rare to like on your own leave and just like think deeply about what's wrong with the world and how you're going to solve it. So um, I'd be curious <laughs> to talk more about that, that decision and where you got that idea from and uh, yeah, just that whole. Yeah. Um, looking back on it, I think it, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like almost a little bit dumb. Like I'm glad I did it and it worked out great. Uh, but sometimes you kind of look back at those and you're like, what was I thinking? Um, it was definitely like the most difficult time in my post-college life was that year between not, yeah, not working in venture anymore. And then by the time I guess, well, yeah, I guess around the time I joined GitHub um, about a year later, uh, just because it's really hard to explain to people what you're working on. Um, I remember like the first couple months, I was just like, people were like, oh, you just, you know, you just left your job. Of course, you're exploring, whatever. Um, but by the time I got into like a year into that, uh, you're like working on something that you can't really articulate because it's like it's it's I think this is actually the thing that is still um, I have to keep reminding myself of now that like sustainability is I can now say like sustainability and open source. And it's like shorthand and people like understand what I'm talking about. Um, mm -hmm. But at the time, it was like. Like it was like a really long winded, like abstract explanation of this thing I found vaguely interesting that no one else really did and you just kind of sound crazy um like I I remember definitely avoiding a lot of social events that year because um, I just didn't really want to have to explain that I was doing this thing that made absolutely no sense um yeah yeah I, I think it's really funny that you say that because my brother is going to a job interview right now and uh, before he left he was telling me that probably the biggest perk about getting this job will be that he has a career that he can tell people about at parties. <laughs> it's so funny. You tell yourself that like, it doesn't matter, but it really does. When someone's like, what are you doing with your time? And you can't answer in one sentence. You're like, God, what am I doing with my time? Yeah. I, I and I, and of course I struggled with this a lot as well. Um, it's, it's really hard with parents and adults, people whose approval you really care about. Um, mm -hmm. in, in my experience, uh, a, a solution that I found, I, who knows if this is an actual solution or, or not, but what I, what feels like a, a solution is I, I felt like I needed to find a community that would value the contributions I wanted to make to society somewhere else. Uh, Cause the, the communities I was in was like, I, I live in New York city and it's a lot of finance people. Um, but, but then on the internet, I found people who, who really get the work. And I feel like you definitely found the same, but I, I'm wondering if you think of it in the same way that the communities you found online validated your work in a way that, helped you then in in-person conversations with people in real life, like your parents or whatever, who don't get it. Definitely. Yeah. I think that was a very difficult mental break for me to make um, living in San Francisco and working in tech, because I think the dominant theme of conversation in tech here is uh, like startups and venture capital, or at least that was the world I was coming from was like, if you say you work in tech, people assume that you're really into startups or you're, so you're either going to start a company or you're going to start funding companies. And those are like the two main career paths. Um, and so I think it, 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 it took me some time to realize that there is a ton of people that work in tech that don't do stuff like that. Um, but I really had to find a community of people that would value that. Um, and I think like, yeah, I, I think I found two 
types of communities. One was around um, just open source developers themselves. Like I spent a lot of time just like really deeply immersed in that. And it wasn't just because of the work I was doing, but also because I think like spiritually, it was just like, I just really enjoyed being around developers who cared a lot about software, who cared a lot about tech, but like we're doing it for these like very intrinsic motivations. I just found that like really restorative to be around. Um, and then also I think there's just more of like a meta community that I found now um, that took me some time to get to um, where they might not necessarily understand day to day what I'm doing, but they understand the process of I'm working on something that I really care about personally that I think is different and interesting. And like we all have our own weird problems that we're all fascinated by and enjoy digging in on and there's sort of like this mutual respect that it's it's the the first question out of their mouth is not going to be like oh are you going to start a company around it because if you don't start a company then why are you even doing this um which is the kind of conversations i was having like a few years ago um that felt very disheartening yep i know exactly what you mean. <laughs> uh, i also came, come from those communities uh but but yeah i have a different ethic around it now so yeah, I think it is. I don't know if it's that I'm finding more of those communities or that things really are changing. I feel like they really are changing, especially after the last um, presidential election. I think it's just like more people that are kind of interested in a different side of tech, which is nice. That's that's interesting. I, in my experience, the people I meet on in real life are the same. Uh, it, it's almost <laughs> to me, it seems like they've regressed, which isn't true. It's just that I spend so much time with people online who are like who who think like me that when I talk to random people in real life. It's like such a shock. Uh, <laughs> filtered out. It's entirely possible. I just avoid those people now and I just pretend they don't exist. <laughs> yeah. I imagine, so like you and I met uh, through various online activities. Um, and, and now I, I was trying to make a list and I had to stop when I reached like 80 people. I have so many hundreds of people uh, that I've met from Twitter and Slack and other various online places all over the world. Do you feel like you too have like, all these friends from the internet that you yeah yeah that's definitely changed i think like um most of my friends were in san francisco before that were in tech and now i mean and this is maybe just a general trend of tech also but uh yeah now i feel like there are people just like all over the world um especially given i guess that i spend more time now in open source communities um, that are more distributed but yeah i mean twitter has been like life-saving i think it's just so i've met so many great people just through conversations on twitter i mean Usually now, if I'm hanging out with someone in real life and someone asks, like, how did you two meet? It's almost always like, oh, Twitter, um, which is <laughs> a funny, funny thing to explain. But yeah, really cool. I think it's just it's so great that we can unlock um, just like similar minded people and connect to each other from around the world that you might not have otherwise found. Yeah. And it's it just crazy. Like, people always laugh when I say that I make friends and we talk about research on Twitter. It's like, oh, and they're like, who are these people? I'm like, oh, like academics, other programmers, hobbyists. Uh, it's just like, but it's only like 140 characters. How do you say anything interesting? It is funny to think about because it's like, it's not even necessarily that we like are tweeting back and forth or something, but it's that you just read their tweets and you're like, I mean, it's the same as blogging, I guess. Or yeah, as long as you see their thoughts online and you're like, oh, that's a person I want to spend more time with. And then it might facilitate like an offline interaction or a private conversation. Yeah, totally. Uh, well, so um, the other thread from your story was that uh, you took time off and you kind of self-funded this few months or your, like kind of a year of work on your own to find an interesting problem to work on. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the funding of the finding of problems uh, first 
like crossed my mind. I think Brett Victor or Alan Kay mentioned it. Like that's like that's uh, an area where people don't think about funding things, and that's like a tricky one because you, you usually like the incentives. You want like someone to work really hard on a, on finding something good, so then we can like reward them when they've succeeded. So like I, I don't know. I I wonder if you've had thoughts on the funding of that part of the journey, like whether it's a good idea or not, or or just like. Uh, I know you've done a lot of uh, thinking on the sustainability of open source uh, and and existing open source projects that people already rely on. That's like an obvious, it's a clear case to make, the, you know, to fund that. So I'm wondering if, if you've just, if you've done th thinking on the funding of the, the finding of the problem. Because, yeah, because clearly you think yeah. that's, you know, you, 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 you're someone who's, who would understand why that's important because you had to fund it yourself, the finding of the problem. Yeah, it's really tricky. It's, um... I feel like my views are always kind of changing on it. I absolutely think that if you can afford to do it, then, um, and if you can afford to do it and there's no other path out there, then like, why wouldn't you? Um, I couldn't <clears throat> afford it in the sense that like, I wasn't like rolling in dough or anything, but I had enough money that I knew and I didn't have debt. And so like, I knew that I could like do it and survive. Um, I definitely like uh, the Ford Foundation funded me after I think about six months into that, which at that point was getting kind of necessary. So, um, so I did manage to find like funding here and there. Um, I think it, it's, it's just like an interesting question because it really gets into this question of like, what is the point of having money? <laughs> uh, not to go super deep or anything. Um, but I think like there having other people fund what you're doing can also tell you that you're onto something. And so I think it can be, um, and also like having funding can give you, it can help convey a message or convey that you're working on something important. So like once I had funding from Ford, it was definitely different for me to say like, Oh, I'm being funded by Ford to do this thing. Mm -hmm. um, even though they weren't paying me like gobs of money, it was just like being able to say versus like, I'm a crazy person who's just, doing this out of my savings and cold emailing people like it doesn't sound it sounds kind of sad and pathetic um or at least I felt sad and pathetic um and so yeah there is like something like useful about having someone fund your work that is validating um but I think in those really really early stages like it can be very liberating to say well I have the money to do this so I might as well just like like in the end like if there's something you really want to do and you can't find any funding for it or maybe you just haven't built up enough like like I couldn't have asked Ford for funding before I did any work. Like the, I think the reason they did fund me was because I said, I've already had conversations with like a hundred people about this. So they like knew I at least had done some work. Um, but if I just started out cold asking people for money, I probably wouldn't have had much luck. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's a really hard question. And the more I get like into, I think, yeah, I mean, the the more, like, I, I've, I've eventually come to appreciate the value of having funding, uh, whether it's an employer or whatever, just because it does convey some sense of worth, at least, even to yourself. Um, but I do find it really liberating. I also think, sorry, I'm just rambling a little bit about this, but um, I think, like, it felt like a really bad use of my money at the time, and that I was just, like, throwing it down the drain to work on a problem. But I... Uh, in the end, like I ended up like, like basically breaking even that year, I think. And when I think about like people that are going to grad school because they don't know what they want to do, like you're going into like 
you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to find yourself. Like if you have the savings already, you might as well like not go into that debt and just like spend a year like learning a lot. You know, like it's basically like I think it sounds financially risky, but it's actually not that risky compared to some of the other ways that we like fund those kinds of journeys. Yeah, I would agree with that as, as someone who uh, didn't graduate college, but is now doing academic research. Uh, you definitely don't need an institution uh, to help you figure out a, a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. And even like, yeah, I mean, beyond official school or anything, but people just spend tons of money on like these investments that sound like good for their careers or good for their lives. I think because they are like, we all get so uncomfortable about um, not wanting to sound like we're not doing anything useful, but. Yeah, I think on the, the Recurse Center website, Recurse Center is like a three-month-long retreat mm -hmm. in New York City for programmers. And I think on their website, they say somewhere that the basic point of Recurse Center is that when people ask you what you're doing with your life, you can say, oh, I'm at this thing called the Recurse Center, as opposed <laughs> to, oh, I took three months month off to just like code on random shit. That's so great. Some of, you just have like shell organizations that people <laughs> create. So you have some fancy title to point to. Yeah, well, I think that's like definitely the the easiest solution. I I feel like the solution that I just my heart's in because I like feel the love is uh like just you need to find your community because uh, they exist on the internet somewhere. There there is a group of people who will validate your choice, your like lifestyle choices. I guess now now this sounds like it could be a bad thing. Like if, if you can come up with any destructive lifestyle choices and someone will support you on the internet, that's not what we want, but. <laughs> I guess we want uh, people who have positive but like countercultural choices to be able to like find people who can respect them for it. So, yeah. Uh, anyways, enough about that. Let's uh, talk more about your your direct work. Uh, I think we got a little bit too meta too quickly. Let's talk more about I was uh, it. open. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the uh, the sustainability of open source. Um, I thought a good place to start because uh, I was. I, I, I overprepared for this interview, just reading, rereading all, like everything you've, you've ever written. This Whoa, morning. I don't want to uh, reread some of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I was like, oh, wow, she was blogging in 2014. Let's see what that was oh, about. Oh, God, no. <laughs> uh, so uh, so I, I saw in various places you talk about the distinction, um, like the, the beginning of free software and how, and then you distinguish it uh, with open source software and then then you come up with your own term public software. So I thought maybe you could walk us through the history a bit and contextualize the differences between these movements. Yeah. I mean, short answer is I still don't have a good, I, I kind of played around with some terms and ideas back then, um, but I still use open source primarily now, but I still don't like it. Um, <laughs> I think, so the funny thing is that free software and open source software have the same literal definition um, and both sides will acknowledge that. Um, there's nothing like technically different about free versus open source software in terms of like the four freedoms or whatever. Um, but they obviously convey like very different cultural connotations. Um, and I think there's some like third connotation now that um, isn't adequately captured by open source and that like, like, because most software that we're putting into our proprietary software is open source, um, which wasn't true, like, you know, even 10 years ago, like most of the software we're building on is 
just open source at this point, which is just like so obvious now that you don't even have to say it. Um, using the term open source is just like kind of meaningless. And I think like there's a very clear wave from the early 2000s of people who like very strongly identify with the idea of open source. Um, and I think are mostly focused on licensing issues. Whereas like this, whatever this other wave is, is just like people that are writing stuff and sharing it under very permissive licenses and just sort of like, I mean, it doesn't even occur to them to think about what that means. Um, because like, of course, why wouldn't I share my code with other people? And like that, those people I think are more concerned about sustainability than maybe the second generation. Oddly, I think they, they have some things in common with free software people. Um, more than anyone would care to admit. Um, but yeah, I mean, like there's, because I think it's also so obvious to them that like, well, I'm writing code at my job, I'm writing code for fun. Like, why would I not get paid to like write code in whatever shape or form? It's, it's sort of just like an obvious question. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's another thought on. So um, I, I think in your writing you refer to this like i think it was a tweet like the post open source software yeah phrase, uh like where people are just like screw the, screw the license like i'm just going to commit to github and i'm definitely <laughs> of of this generation uh like i feel like i don't even think i've read any license all the way through like i don't even know the difference i think i know that mit is like the most permissive but besides that i don't really know anything so i and usually when i start a project it's like 90 percent not going to turn any into anything so i don't even want to invest the time to figure out the licensing. So, but I think I've also seen your writing that you say that it's important to like pick the right license. So maybe you could give a, a plea or, or, or educate us on, yeah. on, on why it's important. Well, long story short, when I joined GitHub, uh, I learned one of my colleagues, Mike Linksfair, um, created this really great website that's just called chooseolicense.com. And it's like the easiest thing to understand. So if you ever need to pick a license, just go to that website. Um, but I think that the... the is it important to do it at the beginning of the project or can I, you do it yeah. anytime? It's important to do it in the beginning because that way everything that is, it's hard to change licenses retroactively. Or if you do, then you have to, then like all the former contributions will be under one license and the, all the other ones will be on another license. Like relicensing is a little bit of a legal headache. Um, so you might as well just throw something on, especially on GitHub. They make it really easy. You can just add a license file when you start a new project and just at least put like MIT on it and be done with it. Um, and MIT is like by far the most popular license at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, the main ones are MIT. Basically it's like MIT is super permissive. Um, GPL, if you care about copyleft and Apache 2.0, if you're a business is I think like the shortest like tweet length version of how to pick a license. Um, what was I gonna say? That sounds like a good, a valuable tweet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I think like the reason, I think it's actually like not a good thing, but um, it speaks to the success of the early open source movement that people don't really care or think about licenses now. Um, and yeah. it's problematic when like there is no license on, on the project, but um, I think- Why is that problematic? Because like you can't, if, you're, if you don't have an open source license on your code, it's not actually open source, even though you might be sharing it around with people. Um, so if someone really, really care, they could do something about it. Um, so it's not so uh who's liable to risk like wh what's it's not open source in what sense like someone if someone uses it and i'm i'm the creator i can sue them because i didn't put an open source license yeah or say someone took your code and they put it in something that like hurt someone i don't know um like maybe the code malfunctioned and 
something horrible happened. I don't know. Um, technically, I guess you could, there might be an argument. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't really want to go super deeply into this. <laughs> um, but like there, so one of the important parts of an open source license is, is that the software is provided as is and that you're free of any liability associated with it. Um, whereas if it's your code, I guess, I don't know. I, I don't know which argument is worse that they took your code without permission or that your code is in something that might have like harmed someone that I guess you're technically liable for. Um, the point being, I guess that like early open source people worked really, really hard to make licenses. Like the concept of licensing sounds really complicated, but really like there are basically three main licenses that people choose from and they worked really hard to standardize and simplify that stuff. So it's really easy just to like add an MIT license file on GitHub or like copy paste the text and just like stick it on there. Um, and I, but I think that's sort of like the defining difference between that earlier generation and the current generation where like they had to really fight for that stuff because it really, really mattered then because this stuff wasn't standardized. Um, it, like, I mean, if you think about it, it's like pretty crazy that like open source itself simplified the legal process so that like the legal files themselves are just as standardized and widely shared as open source code um like imagine if you had to like hire a lawyer to like draft something every time you wanted to release code that would be crazy but they made it really really simple um but yeah now it's like so simple and so obvious that like people in, that are you know writing open source code now don't even like think about or understand the differences and i think that's like always really frustrating for early open source people because they're just like why don't people care about the licenses? And it's like, well, because you did such a good job making sure that no one had to care about it. So like, this is actually a success for you. Like, don't be, don't be frustrated. Um, that's yeah. how I feel about it anyway. That's funny. Uh, so uh, next, next topic. Uh, I want to talk about like the dream of open source. Uh, and I think a lot of people have different, have had different dreams over the years. Uh, one of the original dreams is the bazaar, I guess, versus the cathedral. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think I've seen you on different places talk about uh, how things haven't quite lived up to that dream in different places. And so I thought maybe I'd give you the opportunity to craft a new vision for like what the dream of open source could look like, uh, like what's, what's realistic to hope for. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of just understanding what is actually happening now compared to like when something like the Cathedral Bazaar was written, it was written in like such an early time in open source's life. And who knows, maybe we're still at very, very early times um, that a lot of it is just sort of like theoretical. Uh, and whereas now I, I think of it less as like, I want things to be a certain way, but more of let's look at what's actually happening and does that match up with this rhetoric that we've been holding really strongly onto. Um, so like one reason I think free software people and like, modern open source people which i hate to use i mean they're modern software developers that are also free software people but yeah. if we're thinking in terms of like waves or whatever whatever is happening right now um the reason why i think they actually have more in common than they realize is that free software people also really cared about sustainability um but a lot of those projects and like at the time of the free software movement like there were just such fewer people working on software so you had like you know let's say you have like 10 developers who are like working on this project and everyone is, it truly is this like pure production commons kind of thing where everyone is participating. Um, they have a much smaller base of people that are using the code. And so like everyone really does feel this sense of ownership in like the software commons. And so they really care about sustainability, but like sustainability works very well when you 
don't have that many people using your project and everyone who's contributing is like very active. Um, there's an expectation that users like try to solve their own problems or that they're like talking to developers and like working through stuff. Um, whereas today at scale, like it's just impossible to expect that everyone who uses open source software is going to be able to contribute back. Like these projects have gotten super, super complicated. You have like millions of people that are using them, we're relying on them. Um, and so like that idea of this sort of like happy little like peer production commons of like small groups of people working on something sustainably is just like not really possible at scale. Um, and so what I'm trying to understand better and sort of develop a theory around is um, what does it look like to kind of separate out the production and the consumption of something like software so that the consumption of software is still very highly scalable, um, I think. Like ideally, if you're just taking the code and running off into the sunset with it, like there is no real cost to the producer associated with that. Um, that's the promise of all digital goods, right? That you can consume them kind of costlessly. Um, and it doesn't matter if like a thousand people or 10 million people use it. But the production side of it, I think does have some finite limiting factors. Um, and you can only, and I think the, the limiting thing about the rhetoric that we like have really tightly held onto in open source right now is that it's supposed to be this 100% participatory commons kind of thing. Um, but like, it's just impossible to expect that out of like millions of users who don't have the same context for the production side of that project. Um, and in some ways, I think this mirrors what is happening on the internet in general. Like we thought the internet is this like super democratizing place. And if only everyone could talk to each other, we would just all get along. But like, I think everyone is quickly realizing that like, if you just don't have the context to understand, you can't just like walk into someone's community and then demand things because it's democracy and it's the internet and anyone can talk to anyone. Like there are kind of like rules around how you participate in conversations or how you approach people you don't know on the internet. Um, and I think it's the same thing in open source. We're just kind of seeing that same trend being mirrored. Um, so what I would like to see, I guess, like the dream of open source for me would be to be able to sort of like reassert, like what does that, um, what does that smaller, like maybe slightly more semi-private or just like higher context um, production commons look like that's separated out from the thing they're producing, which can be consumed costlessly by anyone. Hmm. Interesting. So um, it, as a part of that vision, um, like I know you talk, you use uh, like the metaphor of infrastructure to talk about open source mm -hmm. in a lot of different places. Uh, and you make the comparison between like uh, trucking companies don't have to pay for roads because the government taxes all of us and then pays for roads. Um, but as far as I could see in your writing, there was, I don't think you like ever mentioned like, huh, like maybe the government should tax people and then the government should somehow su sustain open source software. Is that something you've considered at all? Um, it was something I thought about early on. Uh, it's been kind of funny how, I don't think I've ever talked about this really, um, but the process of trying to work through solutions for open source has definitely changed my politics or challenged my political <laughs> beliefs. Um, <laughs> which I won't get too deeply into, but... Um, I, I'd be fascinated if you're comfortable to share, but yeah, also... well, I'll try to think of a nice, not less, slightly less controversial way to talk about it. Um, so <laughs> I think like this is one reason why Eleanor Ostrom's work has really resonated with me. Um, and so she wrote this book, Governing the Commons, and it's about um, her. She's basically documenting all these examples from like fisheries and farms and things like that of um, people who sustainably self-managed a commons, and. Uh, a key part of her thesis is that um, 
we assume that the tragedy of the commons needs to be resolved either by the market or the state. So like the government is intervening or we have to like price it or something um, so that people don't like over over um, extract from the commons. But she's in her examples, she's like documenting all these cases of um, commons that where they didn't have any external intervention and people just learned how to manage it themselves. And um, I think her work has resonated a lot with like the times right now, <laughs> just in general. Um, and I've noticed like a lot of pickup from like crypto folks right now as well. Um, and I think there's just something there around the idea that like external intervention can kind of feel like this band-aid response of like maybe the government doesn't know the best thing that the commons needs to, you know, care for itself or whatever. Um, and so I, I've, I've kind of taken those views to heart around open source where like from the beginning, it's very obvious to me that like open source is different from sustaining other things because it's so decentralized. Um, it's kind of hard. You can't really imagine it like being something that the government manages because like it would take away one of the best things about open source, which is like in theory, anyone can really like jump in and get involved. Um, there is no central entity. It's not even all in the same country. So it's like really hard to picture like how would a, how would government even really sustain it unless we're talking about like the UN or something. Um, and that happening in conjunction with, I think in the past year or so, just a lot of, there's been a lot of um, critique of the tech industry and a lot of scrutiny. And I think we're seeing two types of responses coming out of that. One is um, an increased interest in regulation of tech um, from the government. And the other is people who have sort of like lost faith in the ability of the government to regulate. Um, both people might care about the same thing. Like, I mean, if you dug into my writing from like 2014, like I, I used to advocate a lot for regulation of like monopolies and things like that um, in tech, but I definitely lost a lot of faith in that, um, especially in the Facebook testimonies that happened this year. Um, just seeing that like, I don't know that the government knows how to resolve these problems because I don't know that the government understands tech well enough and maybe it just can't move fast enough to really like respond to these things. And so while in theory, I would love someone to like help step in and solve things for open source, I don't have a lot of faith that, one, that anyone has the knowledge to really do that, um, including government. And two, that like adding some sort of centralized aspect to open source can just kind of destroy the whole point of it. Um, and so, yeah, I think I've, as I've tried to think about sort of like, well, what is that like, what does the commons of software producers look like? I think that is like a government in the sense of in an open source project, there are going to be some people who just make more decisions. This is like why I really care about um, emphasizing the role of maintainers, because I don't think maintainers get talked about enough as a separate group from open source contributors. Um, and so maybe like maintainers are like the government, but like it's still not literally the government. Fascinating. Yeah, you, you bring up a lot of a lot of things I want to respond to uh, and, and, and push on some more. So uh, I think the first place I want to sit, uh, I just want to put out there that uh, I'm, I'm mostly playing devil's advocate. I, I don't I don't necessarily Yay. believe. Um, but uh, so I I'm with you in that, like, it'd be neat if we could solve this without government. Uh, but the, the example you specifically point to is uh, how like roads and infrastructure weren't government things. They were just like things that people did. Uh, like, you know, in the same, like, just because they had pride or whatever, and they, and they just wanted to do it 
Andrew Carnegie and other other people took it upon themselves to do it for their own reasons. But then eventually the government adopted it once it became like obvious that it was a government thing. Uh, so um, I, I just I just bring that up just to push back a bit and say like uh, it may not seem like a government thing now, but maybe it'll become that way as it's more and more obvious that these open source libraries are like core infrastructure for the world. And then I, the second point is um, that I want to say is I guess open source is new, so maybe it's like unlike anything in history, but I can't think of anything else in history that's been so core and fundamental and yet has remained independent and like contributor volunteer. So anyway, yeah, I really struggle. <laughs> it's unlikely to stay that way. Is that the. Yeah. Yeah. Or just yeah. Um, oh, like, it's hard to point to success story from the past, which doesn't necessarily mean it's impossible. Cause like we have all these new, like the world's so different now than it is in the past. So it's not to say it's impossible. Mm. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to, to push back one last time. Uh, Cause like, just to be totally upfront, I, I too am fairly like uh, anti-government or like, I don't know about anti-government, but I'm, I'm fairly like, um, I, I like believe in people to solve their own problems. Uh, so I'm, I'm with you. I just, in the interest of like seeing the other side, I thought I'd push back a bit more. I think, um, I think I still have the, the underlying role of what government should be doing. Um, like I'm still on board with, well, a couple things. Okay. So one, just the idea of like, you know, roads weren't managed by government and then they did become that way. Um, I think, yeah, I think there's like a parallel trajectory in the sense that roads were sort of like disorganized and not really thought out or planned well. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the history is just so fast. I mean, I did not know until I started digging into this stuff that just like, travel used to be like really dangerous and like people were like dangerous because the roads were bad but dangerous because there were like bandits on the highways and stuff and like I mean it's just like crazy and and now like we don't worry about that stuff when we drive um mm -hmm. and so like yeah there's some some I guess the the trajectory that like somehow this system needs to become a little bit more coherent and organized and thoughtful like I think that is inevitably going to happen um, because like you said I mean that's that's just sort of what happens to all these things as they become really widely used um but i just don't know that like government as a literal like literally the government i don't know whether it'll be that um partly because like again we're just like dealing with a different level of scale on the internet that i think is fundamentally different from physical problems like mm -hmm. yeah dealing with roads as you know in the 1800s was just very different from dealing with like internet scale problems today that are not just confined to one country um mm -hmm. But yeah, I do think that there needs to be some sort of coordination, like thoughtful coordination around how to address these problems. Um, but I think, or I hope people will be able to self-organize to do that. Yeah, I, I find myself kind of thinking that we're gonna, we're kind of waiting around for the Andrew Carnegie of our day to like, <laughs> like, like some tech billionaire to be like, you know what, like my problem, like the thing I care about is open source. And, and the, like, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> and it really just takes one given the consolidation of capital these days it'd be so funny i mean like one of the things i just continue to be delighted by um and frustrated by is like sometimes i get like really in my head on like what would be the right solution of these things and then i realize that like there are still so many people that love open source because open source is totally undefined 
So if someone came through and was like, I'm going to solve this problem, they'd be like, well, who are you that you're supposed to, you know, going <laughs> to solve this problem? Like, I mean, it's so crazy. Like people that um, get upset about like tracking and open source, it's just, it's just like, you know, basic usage metrics are not available to maintainers of open source projects. Like they could be managing some of the most widely used software in the world, like that we all rely on. And they have like no idea who's using it, which is crazy. Um, but if they like, you know, try to add any sort of analytics, people just freak out or like, you know, adding any sort of like commercial license option, people go crazy. And so, um, yeah, I, I find it just like really wonderful that it sort of keeps me in check of every time I feel this desire to be like, well, maybe someone will just magically solve it tomorrow. And I'm like, ah, oh, they would hate that, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, well, so I guess that brings up the question of, uh like incentives and like intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation and the, the volunteer culture we have in open source, which feels like this really delicate thing that we want to protect and encourage. And yet also it's like the same, it, it's this exact thing that like prevents us from just being paid regular salaries for doing this work. Yeah. Uh, it's, um... I, I don't know that. Yeah. That feels like a really difficult problem to solve. Yeah. I mean, it, it does get right in, back into this, um, these sort of cultural clashes around, And I think some of this is just like norms that will eventually have to change. So the example I always go back to is um, nonprofit sector where like, yeah, there's a lot of altruism in that sector and there's a lot of people that might just volunteer because they want to volunteer. But like, I don't think anyone questions the idea that like someone needs to get paid to like manage that work or coordinate. There's, there's some overhead cost, right? Um, and I like- Back in the day, maybe like the only people who could do charity and nonprofit were rich people who could fund themselves. But today it's like understood that, you know, it's like a job and you should get paid a salary to do it. Yeah. Or there's just like, there's different reasons why you might want to go pick up trash on a Saturday morning with your friends versus like run a nonprofit, right? Like they're like really different incentives. One might just be because it feels good or you want to spend time with your coworkers or something like that, or you just want to feel like you made a difference. Um, and another might be, well, I don't know. I'm not going to, I'm not going to manage the accounting and billing for like people's, I don't know, donations or something. I'm not going to do that just because it's fun. I'm going to do it because I'm getting paid to do it. Uh, mm -hmm. And yeah, I think like similarly in open source, there's some like writing code is often, I don't think we really need to like intrinsically motivate people to write code that is fun for them. Um, and I think that's usually what people point to when they say open source is working just fine because people are like intrinsically motivated to do this stuff. And I think that's, again, like in the free software times, like that made perfect sense because they were just working on whatever they felt like. But if you're dealing with like, you know, support tickets or bug reports, like not a lot of people love doing that in their free time. Some people do, but not a lot of people do. Um, but then it becomes really interesting to think about, well, what are, what are the other levers that we can pull? So in the example of support, um, which is kind of top of mind for me, because I've been digging into support research these past couple of weeks. Um, yeah, like a core developer might want to write code for the project, but they don't want to do like, you know, reading through bug reports or answering user questions. Um, so you can either pay them to do that, which is why I think a lot of projects will monetize through support, offering some kind of paid support option. Um, cause then there's like at least an an extrinsic motivation of like, all right, at least I get paid to like deal with this stuff. Um, or you can find someone else who is intrinsically motivated to deal with that. And so like the reason why you have people on stack overflow asking, um, answering tons of questions from users, uh, even though they're not 
core developers on the project is because, well, maybe they're some power user that wrote a book about R or something, and they're really excited to show off their knowledge, or it helps make them an expert on the topic. So like they have their they have their own motivation for wanting to answer questions, even though a core developer might be like, oh, this is the worst thing. I don't want to do this. Um, so yeah, I guess just like being explicit about like who's intrinsically motivated to do this job, and then how do we find the right person to do it. And acknowledging where sometimes intrinsic motivations just fail and we just like need to pay people to do certain types of work that no one else wants to do. Yep. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think that, that brings up a lot of interesting problems. Uh, the question of non-code uh, non -code work and open source, like documentation and mm -hmm. answering some more questions. Um, I, I'll just list a few a few related topics and you'll respond to them as you see fit. Uh, another thing is scale, scaling all the things that maintainers do, because uh, that's like a really tough thing to scale and, and something that you've brought a lot of attention to. Also, uh, people talk about, a lot about scaling first time contributors, but uh, it's really the second time contributor that's the thing we want to improve yeah. uh, from a perspective. And then the last thing I'll bring up is that uh, it seems like it isn't always the case that money is the problem. Uh, like you, you gave us one example of of um, a developer who, or, or someone who who, get, who wrote a check to an open source project and then checked back in later and uh, he didn't spend any of the money because he didn't know how to spend the money. <laughs> yeah, I think that was Jeff Atwood. Um, yeah, that's something that I've been learning um, over the past few years too is like the idea of sustainability is not just about paying people. Like in some cases, it is absolutely about paying people. And in other cases, it's about figure out how to distribute a certain like workload or, or burden off off one maintainer and find other avenues for them um and those are really intertwined but like yeah i mean in the end it's just sort of about like figure out how to manage coordination costs um for an open source project but yeah i mean the the not not knowing how to spend things is always really interesting just because like money means different things at different scales so like something I'll hear from maintainers sometimes is I would rather get paid $0 to do something than $1 because if it's $0, I'm doing it because it's fun and I enjoy it. As soon as I get paid a dollar, then it's like, wait, all this code I wrote is worth like, you know, 10 bucks in PayPal donations to you. And it kind of like upsets them more than if they just never been paid to work on it at all. Um, which I think is just like, so yep. yeah, it's just so interesting from like an economic perspective, right? Like that, like the value of a dollar is not actually linear. Um, and yes. then, like, yeah, at higher scales, it's, I mean, even, like, some developers, open source developers who are getting paid to work on open source, I mean, the best paid examples I can think of are, you know, maybe in, like, the $100,000 range. Um, not, some people are getting paid full-time as, like, employees somewhere to work on open source. I'm not counting those, but just people who have, like, raised money independently. And, like, that's not a ton of money for someone who's, like, a really, really, really high-value developer. Like, they can make way more money just working in industry. Um, if you get paid like, you know, $5,000 a year or something, that's not enough for you to quit your job. And neither is like $50,000, yeah. but would $500,000 be? Sure. But like, yeah, it makes these really awkward like timescales where like $50,000 in donations is a lot of donations, but it might not be enough to pay for one full-time developer. So what do you do with that money? Yes. <laughs> it's awkward. Yeah, you're right. That That, that is a uh, interesting, uh, Valley of yes, that's what it should be called. Um, so back to the uh, the vision of open source. 
the, the vision I have for open source is different and I um, propose to get there or like the way I'm trying to get there is through um, technology in a way that's kind of a, a like a different path than you're taking. I think we're just coming at the same, uh, a, 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 the same problem from different perspectives. Um, so my vision for open source kind of harkens back to, I think, more the original vision that like anyone who uses the thing and has an idea for how to change the thing or make it better can just do that. Um, and there's like nothing standing in their way. Um, uh, but, but I guess there's the, there's the obvious problem that you were saying that software is just so big and complicated that that's just impractical. Uh, so the, the, the strategies that I'm working on is, is to just solve that problem directly, like just to make, to design programming languages and programming systems uh, to lend themselves better to comprehensibility. Hmm. So that one day maybe uh, it, it could be realistic to expect to like, uh, not, not my grandma, but like someone who uses Excel every day and it comes up with it. Oh, so I, I say Excel because they're like pretty computer literate, uh, but then they come up with a way to make Excel better just for themselves or their company. And they could just do it uh, themselves, uh, even though they're not like a real programmer. Uh, so that, that's kind of the, the vision of the world I'm shooting for. So I'd be curious to get your, your quick thoughts on, on that perspective. But you're focused on people who would be able to do that as in like, uh, create a solution for themselves, right? Not necessarily contributing back upstream to a project. Uh, yeah, I didn't make a clear distinction. I think either uh, would be great. So if, if there's something I think would benefit everybody, well, so I imagine the, the way it would happen to most people is like, oh, I just think this would be better for me. And then you do it. And then it's like, as a second thought, oh, maybe my friend would like this, or maybe like the entire community would mm -hmm. like this. But I think as a first step, I just want to customize the software for me. And then maybe I'll, I'll share, like maybe other people would find it valuable and they can like optionally adopt it. So I think the uh, the complexity challenges that I was alluding to are probably less technical and more people related or just coordination related. Um, but I do think mm -hmm. both are important. So I think, but they, they end up almost sometimes being in conflict with each other. So yeah, I mean, like there's a whole body of, interest around making it easier for people to make first-time contributions and this kind of gets to what you're alluding to with the first versus second time contributions um where yeah i mean it should just be easier to make to make a contribution than it is right now or just like it should be more obvious on how to do that um and then maybe that's sort of like and it's not just sort of like how do i make a pull request but also like can i even like read what is going on in this code so that I can make a meaningful change. Um, but then there's the, like the vision of the project, right. And like, maybe you really care about making a, some change. You feel really passionate that this change should happen. Like if you're using Excel example, if, if only Excel were like open source or something um, and you like, you know, discovered something that was really useful for your own use case. And you're like, all right, maybe other people would benefit from it too. And you're really excited to submit those changes upstream and the maintainer tells you like, no, we don't need this. Um, like that's a really, that's a conflict that needs to be managed, right? And so like the stuff that's good for someone individually is not always great for everyone. And I think that's one of those like hard maintainer jobs of like, how do I know which contributions make sense to accept versus not? Um, and I think thankfully in open source, like at least like you can always fork the project and um, and have your own personal version of it right like if yeah. you're like well i like this better than you know merge into your own version of the project and keep using that um which is really nice but yeah it's, i think it's hard to manage the like like 
how do you know when something is good for you versus when is it actually good for everyone else or do you just like think it would be good for everyone else yeah that's that's a tough one i don't know if it's actually possible but i'd like to believe that with the right sort of programming language and and tooling we could like ha have our cake and eat it too in the sense that i can like propose some change and then it's and so like the core of the project is is relatively stable and like uh non-partisan almost like kind of unbiased and then it, which would allow other people to like make almost plug-in-y things uh so 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 there's less of a single point of like uh one person just deciding for everybody what's right uh, and everyone can kind of decide for themselves i feel like that mm -hmm. that's kind of the vision that that would bring the most happiness to the most people i mean yeah i guess in the sense of like you should be able to break apart the projects. I mean, it's essentially forking again of people should be able to work on their own versions of things. Um, but in terms of turning back to the main project, like it, I think it'd be like chaos if everyone could just put in whatever they want. Right. Cause like, what if you have an idea and someone else has literally the opposite idea and it's sort of like the, the problem of like democracy at scale, right. Where maybe both believe really passionately that your ideas make sense, but, like whose ideas should make it in and only one person's can. Yeah, I guess I'm saying that, um, uh, so it'd be neat if like the, the core could be something that is like kind of what you're saying. You, you don't really fork it that often. It's like has a pretty unified vision, but it, it allows for an architecture where, where, where people can disagree and not affect each other because it's, it's kind of like a la carte mm. more. Yeah. I like thinking about that just for like society in general. <laughs> like, I don't like, I don't think filter bubbles are a bad thing. Um, because like, I don't know, inevitably we all need our own little spaces to do our own things. And yeah, it's sort of like, I don't know. I feel like software architecture really mirrors society in some ways or the other way around of like, yeah, sometimes you just need to break things apart and let people have their own spaces to do whatever it is they care about. Mm -hmm. um, so um, kind of on like a different tact. Um, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase that uh, benevolent dictator yes. for life. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, this, this, this week is like a particularly interesting time to talk about that phrase because I guess a few months ago, Guido stepped down from, uh, that position mm -hmm. for Python. And then I think just this week, uh, or maybe it was yesterday. I don't know. It was very recently. Linus Torvald also stepped down from mm -hmm. Linux. I think they stepped down for different, but, but very related reasons that I imagine you would have some, some comments on. Yeah, well, I think they were pretty different without knowing a whole lot about the like back channel history in either of those situations. Um, I think on Linus's side, it was sort of he's been infamous of being a maybe not so benevolent <laughs> dictator for life. Um, <laughs> and that's been like a point of contention for a very long time in that community. Whereas with Guido, I think it's been more that like, I think he's had a pretty positive reputation of. Um, at least maybe I, maybe I only talk to people who like Guido, but, um, but yeah, I think it's it, the sense I got from that just from the outside was a little bit more like he was tired and, um, had been kind of burned out by some of the conversations that were happening and, and kind of just wanted to move on. Um, I think Linus actually said like, I'm just taking a break. I'm not, I'm not burned out and I'm excited to keep stay on this project for a long time. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to come back. Um, but yeah, it is pretty crazy to see like a couple, a few of the biggest, BDFLs stepping down um, in the past 
couple months and I, yeah, I don't know if that's just sort of a generation of developers is starting to turn over or, or what. Um, yeah. I um, just, I thought you'd find it funny when I Googled BDFL, there was like a list on Wikipedia of all of them <laughs> and you know, the top yeah. of the list. I, I don't know what the list is sorted by, so it's just random, but Juan Bennett is no at the top way! of the list. Wow. Does he yes. count as a BDFL? I guess so. <laughs> it feels like the for life seems like you have to have, your projects have been around for like decades before you can say for life. But that's funny. Um, so I guess that's an interesting segue. So I'd be curious to hear about your experience at Protocol Labs, how it's like working on the distributed team. I don't know if you, you go to an office every day. Who do you work with? You know, how, how's, how's that life? Yeah, it's pretty great. Um, we don't have a physical office. So I worked at GitHub before this. Um, GitHub is pretty like remote friendly, or at least I think it's very remote friendly. Um, so I thought it'd be really prepared for Protocol Labs, but <laughs> Protocol Labs is like, takes the concept of remote friendly and like 10Xs it. Um, so yeah, I mean, everyone is totally distributed. Uh, we have about a hundred people now, I think. Um, yeah, wow. it's been no growing idea. a lot. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we're, so part of why I was interested in joining Protocol Labs is because the organization of the company itself is kind of an experiment, I think, that I wanted to follow along with. Um, so we have sort of like different groups of people that work on different teams of people working on different things. And everyone is a little bit like self-managed as their own little like pod or node. And then we have like another group whose job it is to be sort of like the connective tissue within each of those groups. Um, so like I'm under the research org, um, which is probably a little bit, I think consists of more like independent self-managed people than maybe like the Filecoin team or something where people are working with each other all the time. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting setup in that it's meant to be sort of like little pods of autonomy that are all connected with each other. Um, I've been given a lot of freedom and autonomy at, uh, at Protocol Labs, which I'm extremely grateful for. Um, they really respect the idea of a research culture. And um, because we don't have managers, we have a totally flat hierarchy. Um, there's sort of like a I guess a team lead or someone who stewards the research organization. Um, but we don't have literal managers, at least not right now. Um, so I'm able to sort of structure my day. However, I see fit. Um, it's been, so I, when I joined GitHub, I didn't, uh, GitHub used to not have managers, but by the time I joined, there already were managers and like more, a more formalized structure. Um, so this is the first time I've mm -hmm. worked in a company that's like big, but doesn't have managers. Um, or I guess relatively big. Um, so yeah, I've been trying to like figure out how do I even like have like accountability and stuff. And so I think that idea of just sort of like internet Twitter communities and stuff that we talked about earlier, like that's been really useful for me. Like I, I think I spend most of my time collaborating and talking to people outside of my like actual company or employer, but I still feel like I have a lot of colleagues and a lot of people to bounce ideas off of just like in the world all over the place, um, which is great. Um, I started doing this thing that like I really enjoy that's uh, sort of inspired by something we were doing at GitHub where like I just keep a Google Doc that of like weekly updates. It's like a little captain's log um, and some people in the org have access to it. And so if anyone's sort of like wondering like what does Nadia do all day? I just try to like keep a log of the things I've been doing that week and just keep a running list. Um, it's kind of nice for me to be able to look back on and see like what did I do? What have I been doing with my time I guess? 
Um, it's also just a nice like gentle accountability mechanism of like, you should have things to write down, but it's entirely up to me what I want to write down. Um, having a newsletter has also been kind of a nice accountability mechanism um, in that like I send out a newsletter every month and like I want to have writing in it or I want to have something to talk about in it. And that's sort of like, but yeah, it's sort of like I've, I've had to come up with my own <laughs> my own ways of measuring progress um, besides like a traditional, I guess, formal kind of employer-employee relationship. Yep, same. I've had to deal with a lot of those issues. Um, I I also keep one of those like logs. Um, kind of funny. I also I, yeah. it's like talk to yourself in there. Uh, yeah, it's great. I actually publish mine uh, as soon as I write it. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Uh, I I stole the idea from from other people on the internet who I saw doing it, and it and it just gave me so much value into their like act to what they're actually working on and their like meta process of how they think mm. through things. That I just I couldn't you know I just really wanted to just pay it forward, and um, and it's been really great. One of my favorite things about it is um, the linkability of it. So like I I, I like liberally use um, headers for for everything, and, I, and it's hosted on GitHub Pages, so everything has like a link to a specific place in the log. So um, so at this point it's it's fifty thousand words or more. It's like the length of a novel, but I can link to like a, a specific paragraph. Uh, elsewhere in the log or on Twitter or like in conversations with people. So um, that's great. Yeah. I, don't know. yeah, I, I, I would encourage you to do the same uh, just for the selfish reason that I read it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, I feel like I, I would be a little bit nervous to publish it. I don't know why though, because <laughs> I publish other things online that I, I should <laughs> feel self-conscious about right now. Um, the, the way mine uh, happened kind of is um, I have like a personal journal like diary i guess where i talk about like my own life like all sorts of stuff that i definitely would want to be public uh, and then like just in there i would also have work stuff uh and then i was like this is this is kind of silly like a lot of this stuff is has nothing to do with my life uh, like my personal life and other people would find it useful like i just got to like separate these two so so potentially there's like things that you don't want to be public and and like you can keep some of those private but a lot of i imagine a lot of what you write about in that log is like totally benign. So. Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm sort of like surprised that I would find myself feeling awkward about sharing it because it's not like they're yeah I'm not I'm not journaling about my private life in there. But it's like it's almost I think the fear of judgment of like well what if it's not what if I think I'm doing tons of stuff but like really I'm not doing that much at all, um, which is stupid. Right? Like, yeah, right? <laughs> it's been funny with the <laughs> newsletter they sent out because like I. I have a section where I like share books that I've read that month that are relevant. It's not even all the books that I've read, but they're just the ones that I think are semi-relevant to the work that I do. Um, and I also feel kind of ashamed because it's like, you know, there's like three books on there a month or something. And I've had multiple people like respond and be like, wow, you read so much. How do you do that? And I'm like, really? <laughs> so I guess it's all relative and we should stop trying to measure ourselves to other people. But I always feel like I don't read enough or I don't read fast enough. And um well, I think part of it is I think people get the sense that you're not sharing everything. Like they they know that they just see what you do share, so yeah. they must they like they feel just like the tip of the iceberg kind of thing. So like, man, like what must be under there? I'll just continue to convey <laughs> that mystery of yes, there's there's so much going on here that you don't know about. Um, so I'd be curious to hear uh, if we get a sneak preview of like the new threads or research you're working on. I know it might be fuzzy, but I thought that's kind of what podcasts are for—just unstructured. You know, where your thoughts are at. Yeah, now. 
Um, so I'm about to go kind of heads down this in the next couple of months, which I'm very excited about. Um, just there's something nice about writing long form, I think. Um, as I've just kind of been in full-time research for the past few months, I think I've been doing a lot more like short form research sprints and blog posts, but uh, they can feel a little bit cyclical. So it's, it'll be nice to kind of do something longer. Um, most of it is actually kind of what we've already <laughs> been talking about. Sorry to say, but uh, this idea of separating out the idea, uh, a commons into both a production and a consumption side and trying to understand how they perform differently. So I think the way that it's, it's sort of this odd thing, like um, there is a field of economics that looks at digital goods. Um, but at least in my study of it, and I've talked to other people who have not disagreed with this, that um, the, the research on the economics of digital goods basically looks at like stuff from like free software era of like this idea of pure production. You have like people in a commons who are all contributing equally um, or, you know, they all just feel this like shared sense of ownership and that's what a commons is. And it doesn't really hold up at all to what we see from digital goods today. And I think there's sort of this um, harmful, I think somewhat harmful belief that um, digital goods scale costlessly. And some of them do. Like if you write a song and you put a song out on the internet, um, like you don't go back and revise that song according to the feedback people give you. Uh, but for something like software, like that's, you know, being produced in the open, like it's not that you just release once and that's the end of it. Um, you have to make continual changes to it, either because people are submitting changes back to it, but also because software degrades over time, knowledge degrades over time. Like you can't just like release something once and be done with it. And we don't really have a great model to understand that right now. Um, and so, yeah, if we're challenging this idea that um, digital goods don't scale costlessly because there is some non-zero cost that goes back to the producer, uh, what does it look like to sustain and, and maintain that? Um, stuff like patents, for example, work really well because you you kind of like release or create something once, and so you're incentivizing the um, the innovation cost, I guess, or you're rewarding the innovation cost, but you're not um, but you're not accounting for like maintenance into perpetuity. And so yeah, that just requires very different models. So basically, I'm trying to look at like what is it? What is it? What is the actual finite resource in uh, production in the production side of the commons? Um, mostly looking at the idea of attention and like where is attention finite or scarce, and how is it a resource that we choose to allocate or not? Um, which I think dovetails with how we think about attention economies right now. But um, attention economics is kind of focused on like me, the individual making a choice of how to spend my time versus me, an individual choosing how to spend my time on behalf of a commons. Um, so yeah, that's a whole thread around it. And then just sort of getting to like the um, contributor incentives and, and trying to split apart those different kinds of intrinsic and extrinsic motivations that we talked about. So yeah, hopefully it'll all wrap up to something nice and coherent. Right now it's a little bit, <laughs> it's a, a little bit all over the place. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think they all kind of point to this picture of like digital goods at scale that function differently from how we understand them thus far. Yeah, that I I got it. Okay, I, I great. It's, it's, it's slowly all. becoming more legible, like very, very slowly, but 
I still feel like it's messy. I think the, the yeah, I think because I read your other work, uh, the framing of like, I think elsewhere you talked about how someone was, uh, the woman you mentioned uh, who like, yeah, yeah, who recontextualized like the the conversation around public goods. Like she didn't reframe everything; she just like extended an existing framework. Yes. It sounds like that's what you're saying. Definitely, yeah. It's about extending. It's not about replacing. Uh, so in in this vein, it sounds like the work that you do, the style of work you've been doing, is a independent research, uh, which is a phrase that I learned about from you. Uh, through like you wrote a blog on independent research. You talk about that it's like not this new weird thing, but it's kind of been around for a long time uh, in in science, and it works, and it should be more respected. Uh, so I, th- I uh, that's actually how. I guess part, partially how this conversation came about. So I thought I'd bring up that topic, yeah. um, particularly under the context of uh, I recently um, partially, uh, uh, actually, like largely because of your influence uh, writing that article, um, I, 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 f- I found myself a, a mentor or, or he kind of found me through your work uh, of, uh, so Jonathan Edwards, uh, I mentioned in, in the last episode, he, uh, he's agreed to mentor me, uh, like in an act, almost like in an academic sense, like as if we were both in the same institution, but instead he and I are, neither of us are at, at institutions. So, um, so anyways, I thought I'd ask about, uh, your, if, if you consider yourself an independent researcher, if you have a mentor, what sorts of things like a la carte are you taking from, from like academia and research or what sorts of things are you not doing, not dealing yeah. with? Uh, short answer is I'm definitely still learning. Um, I do consider myself to be an independent researcher although I have a full-time salaried position um, just because it's kind of an unusual setup. Um, I've been trying to challenge certain ideas that I think would have come if I had been in academia. I mean, one being that like, one thing I, I do hold very firmly to is I don't believe that you need years and years of training before you can be an effective researcher with interesting things to say in the world. Um, I did consider doing a PhD and I had a few um, institutions approach me to talk about that um, in the past couple of years. And I did, although I love the idea of doing research in that way, um, there was just something cultural that I didn't um, necessarily align with, which was this feeling that like, if I study everyone else for the next (laughs) five to seven years, then maybe I'll be qualified to make a useful statement about the world at the end of that. And I like, I think that might be true for other disciplines or for um, other problem statements, but at least for my own personal experience, the way I came into this was by finding a different angle on something that I think a lot of people were talking about. And so I'm naturally just going to be a little bit like not into the idea of (laughs) having to do it that way. Um, So yeah, I do love that. Like my situation right now means I can just like, if you have ideas and you care about studying them, you should just like, you know, do what you want to do and publish stuff online. And maybe you're repeating other people's work sometimes, whatever, like you're, you're there to learn. Um, So I think that's a really important part of independent research, but um, definitely I think the harder parts can be around collaboration and around um, validation. Like I'm definitely, I feel like I have no shortage of great people to talk to about ideas and things like that, but like there's something about a deeper collaboration um, like a lot of people I will talk to about ideas are people who are doing other things full-time. Um, I don't have a lot of people who are full-time devoted to the same field and the same problem statement that I am. Um, so while we can have great mm-hmm. conversations about things, like I really wish I could just like, 
I wish there were other like full-time researchers working on the same problem as me. And I, I've only found people that are really like tangential or like touch a part of it or are really interested in the topic, but are doing something else full-time. And so I think that can be mm-hmm. a really difficult thing. Um, that might also just be because of problems in New York. Yeah. Um, and then like the validation part is something I, or maybe not validation is the right word, but like the work product, I think is something that I'm experimenting with. Like when I first started ProCollabs, I was like, I don't want to write any papers because like, I believe like if you have interesting things to say, you should just be able to publish them wherever. Um, and so that's why I've only been doing blog posts, but there is something weird about like, if you spend like some of the blog posts I've done recently took like a really long time to pull that data together. You know, it's like, or at least for me, it felt like a long time, like three weeks or a month or something of like spending a lot of time on it. And in the end, you end up with like a blog post and like, then I have other blog posts that I can write in like literally an hour. And it's just like, wait, but both of these are blog posts. Like, uh, there's something about having like a paper that can feel just a little bit more polished. Um, and I think that people are more comfortable citing, um, which is something I found from when I published Roads and Bridges, um, the longer report that I did, like people are like very comfortable. There was something about it that felt more legitimate just because it was like a published report versus a blog post, um, which is kind of why I want to do something long form this fall um, because I've, I've come to accept that, okay, like maybe it doesn't make any sense, but like, there are some things that are just better done in like a slightly more polished form. Um, so yeah, that's something I'm still experimenting with and I don't really have answers to yet. Cool. Well, um, I'm glad that you are at least talking about it because I think you're quite good at putting like vocabulary to things that the rest of us have trouble talking about. I'm glad we're all struggling with it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so the last thing I want to mention is I didn't even realize until I was doing research for this episode, you have this thing called the Helium Grant. Yes. Uh, that's really cool. So I, yeah, I'd be curious to hear about why you started that and, and how it's going and uh, if you'd encourage people, like under what conditions you'd encourage people to apply. Yeah, definitely. Um, that came out. So Helium Grants came out of an experiment that I did, I think, last spring. Um, I kind of had this idea for a bit of, like, I, I feel like... <laughs> internet audiences are sometimes very under leveraged of like you have people who are listening to you you can kind of just share and do weird experiments all the time and like I wish I did more weird experiments on my internet audiences because um so yeah and I think I I just had had the thought of like well what would happen if you were just like I'm gonna give away at the time it was five thousand dollars um and like what would people do with it what would people ask for um and I was talking to a friend about it last spring who was like you should totally just do it um and offered to also match that so i had two five thousand dollar grants to offer um and so i just like wrote a blog post last spring and kind of like put up on the internet and it was just really fun to get responses from people um i got i think that time somewhere i I forget the numbers now it was like i think 2000 ish applications um which i (laughs) all came to my inbox which was a lot of email for a while um and yeah, I decided to keep doing it. I'm doing them now as like kind of on a slightly more rolling deadline. So um, they're $1,000 grants once every quarter. Um, but I've also made it so that anyone can sponsor one with me. So like last quarter we had uh, like 12 grants of just like random. It's It's been fun to see like random things people will apply for, but it's also fun to have random people emailing me being like, hey, I'm going to Venmo you $1,000. <laughs> like, this seems cool. Um and yeah, kind of just like doing that with strangers on the internet is also really fun. Just more internet friends. Um, but the goal of the, sorry, go ahead. 
no, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I just wanted to confirm. It sounds like you are are giving a bit of your own money and then people people from the internet are matching yeah, as well. Yeah, that's the way it's set up right now. It's been like, yeah, I, I put up $1,000 every three months. And if anyone else wants to join in and match that, then they can. Oh. That's amazing. That's so, it's so fun. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like mostly like I think it's been fun for me because I like seeing the types of applications around the world from just like like the way I've tried I've, I've been trying to find the right messaging for it like what I really would like to fund are people that are just obsessed with some sort of idea that they really want to be working on and they need some capital to get them going um it's not really meant to be like a GoFundMe type thing it's also not really meant to be like a kickstarter type thing um in that like yeah, it should just be like, hey, I can't stop thinking about this thing. And if only I had a little bit extra cash to make it happen. Um, not necessarily always because people don't have the money, but because maybe it's a really weird idea that they don't want to spend a thousand dollars on um, or whatever. Uh, but finding that sweet spot of just the right project can be uh, can can just be like hard to convey. Um, but but like regardless, like the the applications I see are just like so, so interesting, just like the crazy stuff that people come up with um, that they can think to spend a thousand dollars on. Um, so it just reminds, I just like, I always get really inspired by people that are doing weird and interesting things. And like, I feel like healing grants are basically a funnel for me to have an opportunity to read about like weird and interesting things from like thousands of people around the world. Um, and that's why I really enjoy doing it. Um, plus it's easy enough to just to do. Yeah, can you share a fun story? from your your application reading or or granting uh, i'm trying to think what i can share so i also made a whole thing about like keeping applications really private um but yeah i'm trying to think what, what can i share um some of them are just like really creative like one from this last round was a woman who like wanted to write her she needed to finish her she was like a Rhodes Scholar and she needed to finish her PhD thesis um, but she had a young daughter and she just like couldn't afford the childcare to like get some quiet reading time in so like she was using the money to like pay for a thousand dollars worth of childcare so she, which translated into like I don't know like 40 hours or something of I don't know what the math is on that but <laughs> some some significant chunk of time for her to do like writing in private um, which I thought was cool. I remember like from the beginning, one of the applications last year was someone who wanted to like fund um, a, like an Uber or a Lyft driver to commute them back and forth to work so that they would have like an extra hour and a half in their day to like work on whatever their project was. I didn't end up awarding it to them, but I, I thought it was like an interesting creative idea. So I'm always like kind of tickled by like the creative ways that people are like trying to create more hours of uninterrupted time in their day. Um, which is like slightly different from like funding yeah. materials or things like that. Um, well, it's, it's funny because when you like ask for a thousand dollars, it's not like, oh, well, like if you give me this thousand dollars, I'll put it in my bank account and then uh, it'll, it'll help me, you know, abstractly. Um, it, you, you have to like kind of explain like how we're going to use it and it's going to directly yes. help. You, it's, you can't give like the direct. Yeah. It's also crazy to see like in some geographic locations, like a thousand dollars goes really, really far. Like someone wanted to name like a building after me or something in the first set of applications. And I was like, wow, that, that was for $5,000. But still I was like, man, 
$5,000 can get me a lot in other places. Um, whereas you don't get people in like San Francisco. Yeah, I, I, I imagine, I wouldn't be surprised if in a, in a couple of years you like only gave grants to <laughs> countries where they were like spreading the, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it, that's, it's also a, it, an interesting balance to manage. Like when, I mean, it's really hard to pick applications for this just because like it's not it's not that many grants given the volume of applications um and so yeah making the trade-offs of like well where will where will a thousand dollars go further um is always interesting cool um well i think now now just in the interest of time is a good time to wrap up so i want to give you just one last opportunity if there's anything you wanted uh like to plug or like if you're looking I, I imagine this wouldn't be applicable for you if you're looking to hire people or to work with people or just generally like places on the internet you want to meet people or talk to them or whatever um now would be the opportunity um, for that. yeah well i like talking to people on twitter and you should totally sign up for my newsletter because i like talking to people on there too sweet awesome well thank you so much for taking the this time this was, was a lot of fun